What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And before we dive in, I'd like to thank our amazing patrons that support this podcast. And if you would like to be one of those patrons, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support for loads of extra goodies. And we'd also like to thank all of our Bestseller Academy members or our Academates who are part of an amazing, amazing writing academy, all pursuing their dreams to become bestselling writers or it really just finished that book that they've been working on or once wanted to work on for many, many months or years. So if you would like to join them, there are about four days left to start in our July intake. Uh, so if you pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com before the end of June, you can put in your application. Oh, Mr. Get, Stay, in there, get been, in there, get in there. Yeah, you've been busy in the academy, isn't he? Writing, surgeries every week yeah those have been quite been interesting great. haven't they there's been uh, there's been some really interesting things that have come up in the writer's surgery great discussions it's kind of open free for all kind of thing discuss whatever you want and uh, there's something new every week and everyone comes away a little wiser uh, and also hang around to the end of the show today folks we got some very very good news from an academy member so you know mm. this is this is where it's where it all starts paying off. It's where it all it's starts paying off. People. I know it's brilliant, isn't it? It's almost two years since the academy's been running now, and it's the, mate, the things that are happening. The mm-hmm. things that are happening. Six book deal last week from one of our very first academy members. Absolutely brilliant stuff. But talking of good news, Mark, something showed up in your world this week, hasn't it? My book arrived. There it is. The Ghost of Ivy Barn. Lovely, beautiful paperback book. Smells lovely. Smell- always sniff your books. Yep. Always sniff the books. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, one thing, okay, so we got a bit of spot UV, a bit of spot lamination nice. on there, but no embossing this time. So the first two <gasps> were embossed. Now, now, uh... you, I know, but this is the thing. You, <laughs> you'll, if you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know that I've been banging on about books are going to get more expensive and publishers are going to be cutting costs. So embossing right. costs money. Also, I've, I've ordered more copies of uh, The Crowfoot because I'm doing all sorts of events over the summer. That's gone up a pound. You know, so you books. So, yeah, I, I, said, I said this was going to happen. Yeah, books mm. are going to get more expensive. You're going to see fewer specials on books. Fewer, you know. So I've still got a bit of spot UV, which the is lovely. S- the spot lamination, though, it is. I mean, I, I mean, embossing's lovely, very tactile and lovely. But spot UV, there's something really magical. For anyone who doesn't yeah. know what that is, go to the YouTube recording of this podcast. And you'll see Mark Holden's book, and you can see if you just turn it. Yeah, you can see that spot UV. It's that reflective kind of shiny thing that they do on the letters sometimes or on the author's name or parts of the actual book and it looks absolutely brilliant so uh, hopefully that will remain for book 
17 or whatever it is that's coming up. I mean, <laughs> I tell you what though, Mark, seeing seeing the glee and joy on your face holding that book for the first time, it never gets boring, does it? It's all right. It, look at that. that you got the German copy there as well. Let's have a look at the German, German copy. Well, this is a this that is looks a, a lot Babes in the Wood. Oh, that's, yeah. Well, it's it's shorter. It's the, that's so. Shorter that's uh, this is a B format. That's an A format. Uh, so slightly different uh, formats. They're different sizes. Um, so yeah, it's slightly chunkier. Um, but yeah, there's a bit of a uh, bit of you know spot lamb on that as well, spot UV, uh, and that's Nacht Salber, uh, Night I mean, Magic. Um, how, how so yeah, that's is the that? second book, Babes in the Wood. Yeah, German. Look how it's rewind, rewind. I mean, doing this podcast <laughs> five nights, you're holding a German version of a book that you wrote. How cool is that? I mean, not many people, not many people get international like foreign rights sales of their book. That must feel great. Yeah. Yeah, it's been good. And also, uh, the, my Turkish publisher has started sort of banging the drum. I think they're going with um, Harry's original covers for the Crow Folk and, and, and that. So I've got a Turkish deal coming soon as well. So that's, that's great. Turkish delight, and, mate. Um, Turkish delight. I will be <laughs> celebrating with Turkish. I know some people I don't like it. Do. I love I a bit love of Turkish it. delight. Do you know what I got for Father's Day, um, Mark? My... Do you know what I got for Father's Day? Go on. A bar. You ready for this? Of Fry's Turkish delight imported from oh. England. Full Isn't of Eastern promise. Full yes. of Eastern promise. <laughs> one of those, you know what the ultimate meal would be? The ultimate meal would be one of those wedged between two hobnobs. It'd be like the, uh, the, posh, <laughs> the posh person's s'more, right? Yeah. Fry's Turkish oh, Delight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what, though? Now you're talking, yeah. The thing about Fry's Turkish Delight is that was the thing, what, what was really lovely about that gift from my daughter is that was the, that was the bar of chocolate I, I gave my dad every year for Father's Day as well. So I thought, well, carry nice. the tradition, right? Pass on, pass on Very the chalice. Nice. So yeah, fantastic. Very sweet. Absolutely. Very sweet. Yeah. So and and absolutely f exciting, fun news on book launch, but some really sad news as well this week, Mark. Yeah, well, uh, my old boss, a uh, fellow by the name of Dallas Manderson, who was the sales director at Orion when I joined um, in two thousand three, uh, passed away, and Dallas had Parkinson's. He's had it since his 40s and he had it when I joined and you know um uh, it never became a problem but we all knew about it you know it was, if you went into his office he would he, Dallas would basically overheat because of it and if you went into his office it was like an ice box it was it was like something you know you'd have to put on a parker before he went in there and he had like a hairdryer which would run on cold which he'd use to sort of you know cool himself down um but Dallas was a one off uh he was there I don't know where to start with him. There was um, uh, there was the singing. So you come in the office in the morning, he'd be the first person in, and he'd be singing from some 80s greatest hits CD that he had in his uh, in his car. So and Dallas was um, Dallas was frightfully posh. Uh, I think he went to Eton, you know, he and he always wore immaculate suits with the incredible coloured lining in, in the jacket. But he was so inclusive, he was so what what I've seen on, on all the Facebook groups when, when we were talking about Dallas, when we heard that he passed away, so many people saying, he gave me my first job in publishing. He gave me an opportunity. He, you know, he, he kind of, you know, and that's what he did for me. He gave me a chance. You know, I didn't have the experience for that job, but he took a chance on me and he always 
encouraged me, not just in, you know, my sales life, in my writing. He was always saying, yes, you know, keep writing, keep at it. Um, he was the one who gave me some time off when Robot Overlords uh, was, oh, wow. was in production. You know, he was always Huge. incredibly encouraging. So, yeah. um, you know, so it, it, he was a brilliant negotiator. He, I loved being in the sitting in an Amazon negotiations with Dallas because they never knew what to make of him. You know, <laughs> very often negotiations. Everyone's read the same how to negotiate sales books. Dallas was of a different school altogether. He was, you know, he was such a gentleman. He always defended the sales team. And whenever we uh, were excited about a book, we'd get Thunderbirds are go emails, you know. So it was Dallas would say, okay, we've got a new book. We're really excited about it. Thunderbirds are go. And we'd all get behind that. <laughs> and then, you know, he had his own language. He didn't refer to the London Underground. He called it the Tubular Railway. Um, and like I said... <laughs> Yeah, he really did. And like I said, he'd, he'd, his speeches at the sales conferences were works of art and he'd be singing. And the songs were always hugely inappropriate. So something like Move Closer or Steamy Windows as well. <laughs> uh, so so uh, we loved him. We oh. loved him to bits. He was one of those people you would do anything for them. Um, but you also knew that he would do anything for you. You know, he was a staunch defender of the sales department. He stuck up for us. He he negotiated our pensions, you know, and uh, and also our redundancy packages. So thanks for that, Dallas. Thank you very much. Wow. You know, so wow. uh, Dallas Madison, an absolute one-off, an old school gentleman of which you know just doesn't really exist in publishing anymore. And uh, it he's he, I think he was only sixty six, uh, which is no mm. bloody age, mm. and um, he made an incredible impact. Not only in my career, but on my life and the way I carry myself. I learned I learned a lot from him about kindness and politeness in the face of uh, you know um, in, in the face of big corporations. Uh, and he was a we we all loved him to bits. And um, you know, rest in peace, Dallas. Oh, what an incredible tribute, Mark! And uh, what an what an amazing legacy. What an amazing legacy to, uh, mm. to to hear. And this is a thing that you just don't know throughout your life, the knock-on effects of how one thing or many things that you do for someone or help someone with, how that yeah. completely changes their life. And you're, you're living yeah. proof of that. That's absolutely yeah. brilliant. Well, And to everyone out there that knew Dallas, you know, our condolences are with you as well on this difficult, you know, difficult week that it's been. Gosh, how do we follow that, Mark? I think we have to follow that well, with, well, no, nothing other than an incredible celebration of publishing, yeah. which is what happens yeah. the day that you interviewed our special guest this week. Tell us about Lizzie Barber. Lizzie Barber is, this is such a fun interview. And uh, Lizzie Barber, uh, her debut novel, My Name is Anna, won the Daily Mail first novel competition. Uh, she's um, She works in the food industry. She works, she's head of brand and marketing at Hush, which is a group of restaurants and that that comes in handy for her. Um, but it's uh, she's got a new novel called Out of Her Depth. And when I interviewed her, not only was it her publication day, but she also had a big announcement. And um, I think I got on exactly the right day. She's, she's a ton of fun. So we discuss, amongst many other things, writing about food, writing unreliable narrators, ambition, and keeping big announcements a secret. Fantastic. Well, let's dive in and listen to this incredible interview with Mark chatting with the absolutely lovely Lizzie Barber. 
Lizzie Barber, welcome to the bestseller experiment. Now, normally I say, how are you today? But A, this is publication day, so a huge congratulations on that. And B, minutes ago on Twitter was ablaze with announcements of, of who are going to be the new Richard and Judy picks for the summer. And your new novel, Out of Her Depth, was announced as one of those. So you must be giddy. How are you today? I'm, <laughs> I'm completely all over the place. I'm like, whatever is the opposite of cool, calm and collected? I'm the opposite. Um, I also have a, 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 you can probably hear it in my voice. I've got a really bad cold. I've just come back from holiday. So I am absolutely jet lagged up to the hill. And then this is all kind of, I don't know. And then I went straight, I work Monday to Wednesday. So I went straight back in, I got back on Sunday, went straight back into work, haven't stopped. And now suddenly publication day is here and the Richard and Judy um, announcement was made at the same time. So I've just been in complete madness. <laughs> it's mad. So you're feeling completely mad, giddy, yeah. jet lagged. Are you sure you want to go ahead with the interview? <laughs> Absolutely. Let's do it. Chuck it all in. Okay. Right. Strap it, everyone. Okay. Well, look, <laughs> out of her depth, today is publication day. Huge congrats. Um, tell us about this. Uh, this is your second novel. Tell us about uh, Rachel and her journey in this in this novel. So Rachel is a kind of typical London girl who gets this amazing opportunity to work in this um, luxury pensione, which is a kind of glorified five-star bed and breakfast up in the hills of Florence, uh, run by this kind of mad contessa called Sylvia. And when she's there, she meets this incredibly glamorous girl working alongside her called Diana, very sophisticated, very sort of private boarding school girl. And down the road from them, there is a, another expat um, British guy called Sebastian who Rachel kind of falls head over heels with and she kind of falls into this group of these kind of privileged uh, 18 year olds that she's never kind of been anywhere near their lives before and she is completely bowled over with it and is having the time of her life until something goes wrong because it's a thriller and her life kind of changes forever and it's set in past and present and we know in present day that Sebastian has just been released from prison for 20 years. Excellent stuff. And this idea of, because I come from a working class background, and this idea of, because um, I, I, I went from a housing estate in North London to leafy leatherhead in Surrey, and this thing of coming from, you know, a, a rough old background and suddenly mingling with people who've got loads of cash and uh, go on holidays all the time. And it's, I, I'm looking forward to dipping into this because uh, this feels really, really relatable. I think a lot of people That's will good. relate to this. So. Well, I think, I mean, she's very much the underdog, and I think... Um, She's kind of a voyeur, and, I, and I've always been interested in that sort of character. One of the big influences was talented Mr. Ripley, and I also absolutely love Brilliant. Great Gatsby, and I love that idea of somebody yes. who's kind of on the peripheries of this world so that they are in it, but they can kind of take a step back from it and can comment on it, and I think that's where Rachel fits in. Only for her, it's this, um, this two sides of kind of envy and jealousy and desire kind of coming in together and, and clashing, and she kind of... Uh, her world is completely changed and she doesn't really know what to do with herself. Mm. Fantastic stuff. The other thing about this book is the food. The food. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're in Tuscany, it's Italy, it's, you know, amazing, astonishing food. But very difficult to write about. It's, it's something that's really, really tough because it's um, you know, it's it's such a personal thing and it's such a difficult thing to convey on the page. What was your what what did you learn in trying to sort of write about food uh to get to get the reader kind of salivating. 
So I have a bit of a head start on two fronts. The first is that I actually work in the food industry. So my brother has a, a restaurant group that I've worked with him for 11 years now. Don't know how that happened. Um, <laughs> so I'm obviously very in touch with food on a day-to-day basis. My husband is also a food writer. So although I can't stand the word foodie, that is how we've ended up <laughs> being. Um, so we do spend a lot of time eating and discussing food. He is incredibly eloquent when he writes about food. Um, he, he has a, a very kind of keen eye for detail of food so I suppose I've got a kind of I didn't I didn't crib off him but um I definitely kind of learned a language of food but I also think although you say it's very personal I also think that there is something also universal about food it's very sensory mm-hmm. particularly Italian food uh, one mm-hmm. of the um scenes that's kind of most evocative of food in the book is is pesto and um for me it kind of says so much about Italy it's got the, the kind of the colors and the flavors and the smell of basil and garlic and parmesan so I think it, it's very easy to kind of bring across more about Italy by describing something as simple as pesto so it kind of it works as a connection for the reader as well and that's what I've really enjoyed when I've gone into the food in the book I'm getting hungry now. Um, <laughs> you also mentioned that you know this is a book with an unreliable narrator, which is always. And you mentioned the talented Mr. Ripley there as well. Yeah. It's always fun to 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 play with one of those. What what were your um, when you started out? Did you know they were going to be unreliable? Was there a point where you thought oh, I can't trust this person, or, or was it something that you planned out ahead? Um, well, funny enough, my mother-in-law said something really interesting to me when she finished reading the book. Where she said, um, "Rachel's reliable, unreliable on all fronts. So she's not just unreliable as a narrator. You actually literally can't rely on her as a friend, which is something that I hadn't even thought about. You know, she she gives away secrets. She doesn't turn up to places that she's supposed to be. She's supposed to. She forgets it's her friend's birthday party. She doesn't turn up on time. She's told to keep." stuff secret she tells it so I think that unreliability kind of has become a characteristic of hers um she was fun to write because I I think you know a couple of people have have kind of who've received ARC copies have said you know I didn't like any of the characters and I think it's really interesting to me having an unreliable narrator who's unlikable because it kind of begs the question as to do narrators have to be likable do do characters have to be likable I mean I think it's interesting for me. It can be off-putting for some readers, but I think that in writing Rachel, I mean, sometimes, God, I wanted to shake her. I mean, she's really irritating and she's besotted with these characters and she doesn't let things go for 20 years and you just think, come on, get over yourself. But in a way, I think that it's interesting to explore that. So I wouldn't kind of make her a nice person because then she becomes just kind of Mary Jane and a stock figure. I think that all of my characters are flawed and that that includes her. Yes, uh, it's often... The terrible note that you might get sometimes from editors or, or or whatever saying, "Can you make this person more likable?" What they're actually saying is, "Make them more interesting." I think with you know stories are littered with really despicable people that we can't tear our eyes off the page because yeah. they're doing such amazing things. So I mean, think yeah. of Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. I mean, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. you yeah. don't like him, but you love to read oh, about him. Yeah, really. absolutely, absolutely. No, totally agree. Let's talk about where it all started, which I understand for you, uh, Lizzie, started writing a competition for Disney when you were 10. Uh, <laughs> tell us, t- t- tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> I mean, so, so I was one of those people who, I mean, I was the classic, and I know it's such an author cliche, but I was a classic bookworm. Um, my mum used to take me to, we lived in North London as well, actually. My mum used to take me to the kind of Muswell Hill bookshop and they kind of quiver when they saw me coming because I'd have said that I've read everything that they've got in. <laughs> um, so I was always, always reading. Um, I was obsessed with Jacqueline Wilson. I wrote a 60-page, book based on Jacqueline Wilson with my own illustrations um, 
which I, I don't know where it is anymore. And then, yeah, when I was 10, I wrote a, a entered a competition for Disney um, and won a director's chair, which I was very wow. proud of. Wow. Um, I think it was called the green stone of jealousy. So, <laughs> you know, really on the nose at 10. Um, and so I think I'd always, kind of, I'd, I'd always been, I'd always been interested in stories and story, storytelling, um, but it kind of took me down the route of um, acting for a long time. All I ever wanted to be was an actress. Um, I acted through school. I was kind of the drama nerd at school. I acted throughout university. And even after I did a quite, lot of kind of semi-professional amdrammy stuff. Um, and then, you know, life, and work got in the way and I thought unless I was you know really committed to it and committed to being a kind of jobbing actor this wasn't really for me um and so I put it aside and then kind of just picked up writing again my there's kind of funny period in my life where my um husband well boyfriend at the time now husband and best friend both simultaneously moved to the states and I was kind of left bereft and thinking what am I going to do with myself so I just I picked up a writing course um it was just a kind of Tuesday evening it's called the original creative writing course um kind of couple of hours on a Tuesday night and I started writing this novel more sort of literary fiction based on my grandma's life um so she had this kind of mad life where she was born in Tel Aviv and moved to Cairo and came to London after the Suez crisis. And, and so I started writing that and then I got really frustrated with it and kind of stuck. And then I had this idea. I always get kind of a very clear vision of the kind of opening scene of a book. And this was about a girl walking downstairs on her 18th birthday. And it's the start of the realization that she's not who she thinks she is or has been led to believe for the last 18 years. And so I started writing it. And then a few weeks later, I told my mum about it because I tell my mum everything. I'm one of those people who calls my mum like 12 times a day. Um, <laughs> and she said that she'd seen this novel uh, competition in the Daily Mail um, to win a, a prize. And I kind of entered it in a flyer. I remember that it was the night before the competition entry and I actually couriered my entry in because I was so worried about meeting the deadline. And then, you know, I'd entered a few things before I'd entered the Bath um, Short Story Prize. Um, I'd entered a couple of other, you know, the stylist did a similar um, entry at the time and just kind of forgot about it. And then I, but I was still writing the novel. It was still kind of ingrained in me. And I, so I put this kind of literary fiction book aside and write, started writing this book. And then a few months later, I got a call from this man called Luigi. I had no idea who he was. I was in the middle of my working day. I thought he was kind of a plumber or something. And it turned out to be, well, you know, you get, you know. Not don't Mario, Luigi. Yeah, yeah. No, I never thought about that before. Maybe that's why I thought he was a plumber. Um, and he said, you know, he was from LBA. So I had no idea what these initials stood for. And then he kind of told me that he was um, from Luigi Bonomi Associates, which was the literary agency that he was the head of, that I'd won this prize. It included the um, publishing deal with Penguin Random House in an advance. And I just, I remember so clearly, I was about to go into a really boring Tuesday meeting and I was kind of slinking down the wall. <laughs> what? 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 Um, so so it's a quite an unusual route to publishing because, um, you know, I haven't sent out um letters I haven't done my research but obviously I've kind of done my research in part as part of the course I'd done and kind of knew about um, cover letters and and was getting ready to submit my book at a certain time but I didn't have that kind of um labored entry so in a way I feel a bit of a kind of imposter syndrome that I'm even here um but it in a way it also feels like it's something that I was always meant to do and I kind of feel like I'm now sitting in the right place finally Wow, there's a lot to unpack there, Lizzie. It's just one thing. First of all, the green stone of jealousy. If, if Disney Plus are listening, I'm sure the film and TV yeah. rights are still available. So, um, absolutely. The the the, the thing of um, your 
your boyfriend and his friend going off to America. And there is that, I think this is something that happens to a lot of people, particularly in their, when they hit 30. And you're seeing films like Tick, Tick, Boom and stuff like that. You know, people would get to a point in their life, they think, I need to have done something by now. Yeah. I need to have, was that kind of the the impetus behind that? Was that that kind of actually, you know, life is rushing by, let's, let's get a move on and do what I, I really, really want to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'd also kind of worn a lot of hats. So I'd done, done the acting. Um, I'd also spent very tumultuous year and a half um, interning all over the film industry. Um, right. And I'd actually been writing a blog um, called Always an Intern, which had <laughs> wasn't an expose. I was very anonymous, but um, I kind of kind of tried my hand at doing some writing and actually I'd been playing around with writing kind of Devil Wears Prada type thing and I just enjoyed it Mm -hmm. but yeah I think that having them both kind of move away gave me this kind of look at my life and thought you know what what am I doing and Mm -hmm. what do I what do I want to do and um so it kind of yeah it started from there and this thing of suddenly, you know, the the competition you're entering at the this is this is fairy tale stuff. Entering at the last minute, you know, getting putting it in, and then suddenly you got Luigi, who is, you know, having worked in publishing, he's one of the biggest and best agents out there. <laughs> it's, it's like you know, the the angels of publishing have tapped you on the on the shoulder. But of course, you know, he's dropping you a line. He's saying, "I'm from LBA." There's there's always a in publishing. There's always an assumption that you know how it works, and authors hmm. often walk into publishing out of their depth, you know, to, to paraphrase your novel. How how bizarre a world was it? How much did you have to learn? What, did anyone sort of show you the ropes and show you how it all worked? Um, I think a lot of it was learning on my feet. And this sounds really bizarre you, you, to other authors or to people who know more about the industry than I did, but I never really thought about the fact that I was writing a thriller. I was just writing a book. And yeah. so it was only when I was sort of met my editor for My Name is Anna that they kind of started saying, you know, this is a commercial thriller book and um, that I would have to, not that I would have to, but that it was an assumption that I would keep writing thrillers and that's how it worked. And I remember going into her with a with a cover design of a, of a idea of, of something that I really loved. And she said, you know, well, that's not a commercial fiction cover. And I just had no, no idea that that's how it worked. I didn't know how much I would be involved I didn't know that you know a lot of a lot of friends who aren't in the industry at all say to me you know do you get to pick the cover so even a small point like that I had I would have had no idea that it was kind of I would be shown something um but nobody actually I mean there's just too much to unpack for somebody to actually sit down and say to you well this is how it works so a lot of it is just me asking questions and finding out what's going on yeah, no, I think this is this is one of publishing's problems. When I was at Hachette, they used to do sort of welcome packs for authors, which they did for a while, but they need constant updating. I think it sort of fell by the wayside. Now, I think I wish more publishers would do that. But suddenly, you, as I understand it, you know, when you entered the competition, you wrote something like 15,000 words or something for the competition. So had you actually finished the book when Luigi took you on? Or did no, you have to? So, so I'd been writing it, I, I think... In fact, it was only it was only three chapters I had to submit for the competition and a cover letter. But then I'd started writing it, and I think I'd written about fifteen to twenty five thousand words by the time he got in contact with me. Right. Um, and then, you know, once once they'd signed, I think I signed in the summer and I submitted in December. So it was a very quick kind of six months mm-hmm. of just kind of plowing through. But then I had, you know, I had no idea. Didn't even know how long a book was supposed to be. Mm. You know, I had to see in my contract that it's eighty-two thousand words, which God, <laughs> it's a lot of words. Apparently, it, it's a lot of words. Um, what What I love though is that obviously you're working. You've got a day job, 
you wrote a lot of that book, as I understand it, on your phone, on yes. your commute. Tell, tell us about that, finding the time in the day to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's very different. And, and funnily enough, I've just finished writing my third book and I've ended up writing three books very differently. So the first right. book, I was working full time, but I didn't have any children. And so in a way, although I was working full time, the rest of my time was my own. Mm. Um, and then I wrote a lot of Out of Her Depth um, as a combination of maternity leave and uh, pandemic when I had a dependent child on me. Mm. And then with the third book, I, I now work part-time very clearly kind of Monday to Wednesday out of office goes off either on a Thursday morning or a Wednesday afternoon um, and Thursday and Friday are now my writing days. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of tried, tried all different <laughs> methods of getting it done. And I think I'm one of those people who thrives on having too much to do. I know that sounds awful, but um, if I have nothing to do, then I will just do nothing. I'll just sit around and kind of stare listlessly into space. Whereas I know if I've got 20,000 things to do, then I have to make time for them. Yeah. And I think when I was working full time, like I, like you said, I would, write in the notes on my phone in my commute and then in the evening I would chuck them onto a word document and make them make sense and and similarly on maternity leave I was writing either with kind of a baby over my shoulder I actually only took three months maternity leave as well so this wasn't a whole year of maternity leave but kind of when my husband came home I would throw the baby at him and then go upstairs <laughs> and start writing um and, and whereas now writing on two days a week it was actually it was actually one day a week until January which half killed me trying to write a book on one day a week. But yeah. it means that you just have to kind of just put your blinkers on and you, you can't kind of give time for anything else. Mm. Um, and I think I have just learned to be very disciplined like that. Absolutely. When you were writing on your commute, what sort of word count were you getting? How, how long were you able to write for? I mean, my commute was only, it was um, Northern Line from Islington to Oxford Circus. So, right. you know, maybe, but maybe a couple of paragraphs, but you'd be surprised at how that adds up. Yep. Um, or, or how it, what you work out things in your head, even if it's just turns of phrases and stuff, it just gets you there. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I would have to still kind of edit it and kind of link scenes together, but I'm not one of those people who can get up at five o'clock in the morning and bash out my 2000 words before the day starts. Mm. But I do carry, especially because I work in this kind of disjointed way, I do carry my work with me all the time. And so when I have something, I have to put it down and my phone is always with me. So it became a kind of useful adjunct to my life to have it there to get the work done. Yeah. Now this is this is joy joy. This is music to our ears because we have a thing called the two hundred word a day challenge where we say yeah. to people, you know, it's Pomodoro technique kind of thing. You just get fifteen twenty minutes. You can get two hundred yeah. words a day down. Then it all starts to add up and all starts to you know build up into to something amazing. Speaking speaking of something amazing, let's talk <laughs> about the Richard and Judy book club pick. Um, which uh, for listeners outside the UK, this is um, this is possibly the best book promotion you can get as a as a as a fiction author today because it's um gets on tv which very few books get on tv these days it gets uh gets in the um wh smith bookstores which is one of our biggest chains and of course all the other chains and online retailers latch onto that as well and it's 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 essentially you know uh, the pick of uh, the crop for summer reading Again, has anyone sat you down and told you what, what this what this <laughs> means? What what you've got? Because we've had authors who've been through this, and they, you know it's been you know transformative, and they've had bestsellers, and it's it's really boosted their career. Have has anyone sat you down to say to tell you what this is 
this all means? I mean, I know that uh, Luigi has been an absolute champion of Out of Her Depth in particular from the start. He, he, I think he's got a real kind of searing insight into books and how they fit. And I know that he was championing Out of Her Depth as a Rich and Judy pick from the start. I know that he just, he could just see it as being a really good fit for that audience and that particular book club so he's kind of impressed upon me that this even before we kind of had it confirmed that that it's as you say can be transformative and that it's um a really kind of prestigious thing to have to be kind of be put forward for to I think um actually I think my name is Anna was long listed so I had a bit of a kind of um insight into how it works but I just it's one of those things that is a bit of a I mean I suppose like everything that's really happened to me it's a bit of a pipe dream um and and it's it's kind of combusted today because it's publication day as well which I hadn't really expected I mean I've I've actually been had the news for a really long time just kind of been sitting there I think maybe even since the beginning of the year and I've just been sitting around, but it's been so imposed upon me that you cannot leak it beforehand. Oh, yeah. I mean, to the yeah. extent to which it could potentially be pulled. Yes, and it would. so I, I've been, yeah. So I, I've been absolutely. I don't know. You know, it's one of those things. It's like, can they hear my thoughts? Are they going to know? <laughs> if I write an email, is somebody going to find the email? And you know, I'm writing like R and J, R ampersand J, like somebody might pick up on it. So, I mean it's all kind of happening in real time because it's been announced today. So I'm kind of sitting back and um, watching what's happening. I mean, the, the picks that I'm with are also just incredible books. I'm an absolute um, Taylor Jenkins reads obsessive. I think yes. she's incredible. So to even be like mentioned in the same sentence as her, I'm just like, Oh, cause her uh, Malibu rising is in, in the list as well, which I absolutely loved. Um, so you know, I, I still feel like such a newbie. I think also because there was a three-year gap between My Name is Anna and this. You know, I'm not this seasoned author who's kind of done one a year and kind of in the flow of something. I'm making it up as I go along. Excellent so, stuff. Excellent. Watch this space. We had we had Taylor on the podcast for Daisy Jones and the Six, and it was, uh, it was a fantastic episode. Listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes for that if you want to look that up. Do you have any expectations of what's ahead of you this summer? Do you, do you, you know... No, I think, um, you know, the um, kind of art reviews have been really positive, but I am just trying to stay really grounded because I think it's really easy to um, kind of believe your own hype or to kind of be aware, very self-aware because you're in this, it's the kind of availability heuristics of kind of, I'm getting lots of tweets, so I'm suddenly thinking, oh, lots of people are reading it, but I'm also very aware of the fact that publishing is such a huge industry. Um, and I, I don't really know what to expect. And so I'm not expecting anything. I would really, I mean, I'm incredibly ambitious. I'm not going to lie and kind of be self-effacing and say I'm not. I'm incredibly ambitious. I'm always looking to kind of top whatever I've done next. Um, I have these conversations with Luigi all the time where I'm like, I just want to shoot for the moon with everything that I do. Um, so, you know, God, I would absolutely, it would be a dream to be a bestseller. But I'm also very aware that there is so much more that goes on in, in publishing that I don't know and understand and that I can't hope for so it's just a big fingers crossed thing it's 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 very refreshing to hear that particularly from a british author we're so modest <laughs> and self-effacing yeah so um share your secret with us just between us lizzie and our listeners what's what's the what's the dream what's the ultimate dream what what would what would you you know project it out there what would you like to see and we won't hold you to it because we know so much of this is out of our hands but in a year's time where would you like oh, to be? I mean, oh, well, I mean, I think being able to say, you know, Sunday Times best selling yep. author 
as having that as an epithet kind of forevermore would be the absolute kind of highfalutin goal. Um, I'd love to get my next, uh, so my next book is coming out next year, then I'm out of contract. So I, I get a lot of it, it's like small goals. So, you know, I'd love to get the next book under contract. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I think anything and everything. I'd, I'd love to be, you know, there are so many um, UK thriller writers that are, I admire, you know, people like Githa Lodge and Harriet Tice and um, I, I, every, every other name has gone out of my head, but okay. there are some people that I, I, and I'd love to be kind of part of their conversation. Yeah. Um, whereas at the moment, I'm just, especially, you know, on Twitter, I'm like, hey guys, hi, <laughs> do you know me? I've got a book coming out. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to be part of that. Um, I actually, as mentioned, me not being self-effacing, I actually kind of marched into Waterstones this morning. And, and I live in Islington, as I said, so the, the local Up Street one. And was like, got any copies? Can I sign some? Um, and they put my like one little copy in the window. And I was like, oh. I'm in the window of Waterstones. So, you know, I'd love to kind of be on that level of um, people knowing who I am, I guess, to not be around the bush. So, yeah, everything. Best would be great. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Well, that, we love to hear stuff like that. And um, let's get you back on in a year or so and see see what's what's happened. Uh, I bet it's going to be amazing. Uh, so, yeah, everything everything is in the right place. Well, look, Lizzie, I'm going to let you get on with your amazing day. It is publication <laughs> day. I'm sure there's going to be huge celebrations. Um, have you got anything lined up? What, what Have you been thinking about publication day for a while and what you might do? Yeah, well, I mean, the day itself, so I'm having a little launch party at Hush, which is one of the restaurants that um, I work with with my brother on Tuesday. Um, so that is a kind of chance to see faces and kind of toast. So I think that's kind of the big day. And today, as I said, I'm so all over the place today that I'm just kind of taking it all as it comes. And, and I was actually going to go for a really long run this morning and then... Um, basically couldn't be bothered and I have a horse, so it's very bad but you know I'm just I'm I'm afraid I'm just sitting on my phone seeing messages from people and it's been really nice it's just been really <laughs> nice to, to soak it up so I don't want to do anything too much because I feel like I just want to kind of sit and enjoy it and I'm very as I said before doing 20,000 things at once I don't often just kind of sit and enjoy things I'm going to let it kind of wash over me Brilliant. Well, enjoy that. Enjoy that. Enjoy your day. Enjoy the summer and the next year. And uh, folks, out of a depth, well, it'll be everywhere anyway, but grab a copy, grab a copy, enjoy, and um, hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. God, it's not often you get all that happening on one day, is it, Mark? (laughs) I know. know. What a start to release day. Yeah, I'm amazed she had time to speak to me, to be honest. I was very, I'm always grateful when authors, you know, take the time to speak to us, but on publication day as well. And also the day that you get that big Richard and Judy announcement and that, that thing of that thing of keeping it a secret. I mean, that's the real deal. I mean, we would, uh, you know, talking earlier about Dallas and his Thunderbirds I Go uh, emails, you know, when we had a Richard and Judy uh, book, we all had to get you know, our retailers to sign NDAs. We all had to keep shtum about it. We had to make plans, you know, without telling people what it was all about. It was, yeah. you know, everything, everything changed. And it's, uh, it is a big deal. It is really is a big deal. I found it really fascinating as well that Lizzie talked about one of her favorite authors, Taylor Jenkins Reid, who we've had on the podcast, as you of mentioned. Of course, right? of course. And yeah. she, I remember very, very clearly when we were interviewing or around the time when, when, when we were doing the interview, I remember walking into 
Chapters, my my local big bookstore, and picking up her book and seeing a sticker on the front of it that said Reese Witherspoon Book Club. Yes. And so she, you know, I think she had her big break. You know, with the, what the and it's kind of interesting. We were talking about this before the show, weren't we? Like the what is you know for people in you know outside of the UK who've, who've maybe never even heard of the, the the of Richard and Judy, which was a mm. TV show, wasn't it? Between two thousand one and two thousand nine, I can't believe it finished that long ago. I thought it just finished the other day, yeah, <laughs> but it was a, a very very popular TV show. A bit like kind of the equivalent, I guess, of you know it was a married couple equivalent of Oprah, wasn't it? Richard and Judy. And uh, this kind of like people you'd, you'd hang out with on a Sunday afternoon with a cup of tea and scones, and they were very lovely and friendly. And that was the book club in the UK. And and now the equivalent kind of version of that, I guess the biggie was is the Oprah book club. But now the kind of, you know, the Reese Witherspoon book club's really taken a lot of steam. And that's like the cool, the cool book club to get under. But it really can change lives, can't it? Yeah, because you've got people, you know, you might have people who, Either devour books and, and are always looking for something new and want someone to recommend something, or you get those people who might only just read a book over the summer, two, maybe take two books on holiday, two or three books on holiday, and they want a guaranteed good read. And, you know, those those book clubs are the arbiters of taste. They are the ones who say, look, this is, this is a page turner. You know, Lizzie's book is a page turner. You will not be disappointed. You're going to have a great time reading this book over the summer, on the beach, by the pool, wherever you're going, you know, for holiday this year. And um, that's incredibly useful. That helps people make people's minds up. They, they kind of think, great, I'm going to pick that. Look at that cover. That's Love the colours, love the design, love the title, ticks every single box. So that's commercial fiction for you, folks, you know, and that's not by accident. Someone like uh, Luigi, Luigi Bonomi, I mean, he's an agent who knows his stuff and he knows how to help craft a hit. Uh, so he will have seen something in Lizzie's Barber thinking, you know, about commercial fiction. And as you know, as she said, she didn't really know what commercial fiction was. You know, she didn't think she just thought of her books as books. Um, yeah. You know, but so he will say, OK, you have the kind of writing that will cross over into the kind of the rich and Judy market that will sell in supermarkets and in uh, WH Smith's, you know, the popular book chains in the UK and will appeal to those readers, you know, crossover, you know, not only the ones who devour books, but also the ones who might only read one or two books a year. That is ticking so many boxes. Uh, and, you know, the cover art is done. When he, when he will have sold the book in, I guarantee he would have said, Something along the lines of, yeah, this is someone you can sell to Richard and Judy. And when an editor hears that, when an acquisitions board hears that, they're thinking, great, okay, this is commercial. We're going to make money on this. So, mm. you know, it's, um, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of being in the right place at the right time. There's, there's that thing of writing the right kind of genre. But the thing that Lizzie has, and she's not embarrassed to talk about, is she has that ambition. Yes. And um, that I found really impressive. Yeah, it's really, well, it, it's all the way through, isn't it? Because I've always said this, if you as an author are, I mean, we talk about dream declarations on this show, don't we? I mean, we've, we've, this is one of the things that we've been really big on that people pick 
forcing authors, the humblest of the humblest of human beings mm. often, forcing them to mm. actually say out loud what they're really thinking inside. Because I know everyone's very humble, but inside, we know mm. every author's got this little spark of a dream or a huge spark of a dream, and they're scared to share it many of the times. But but Lizzie's right out there. She's like, right, you know, I'm walking into Waterstones. I'm, I want my that one copy of my book. I want it in the front window. And the thing is, when you're like that as an author, when, you're allow, when you allow yourself when you allow yourself to really be confident in, in what you're doing, it filters through. It starts with the author. It gives the confidence that an yes. agent can promote you. It gives the agent the confidence to promote you into a publisher and say things like, this is definitely a Richard and Judy book club. And then, and then the publishers pick it up and go, this is a rich, and it, it just, it, it goes all the way down the line. And it absolutely does not surprise me one bit that she has landed this massive, massive opportunity. And not only that, but I think we, you know, you mentioned about her coming on next year. I think we will see Lizzie, you know, she keeps up the writing that she's doing. She's not, it's not guaranteed, but she's got a much, much, much higher percentage chance yeah. of breaking out and becoming huge compared to someone who's, you know, hiding their their light under a bushel, so to speak, and not really kind of pushing themselves on into the into the publishing world. And I think it's a really important yep. lesson for a lot of people to learn here. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm in a lot of writers groups on Facebook and people will ask questions about the industry and you see so many questions prefaced with, I don't want to be seen as difficult. But, but. <laughs> and you know, yeah, and so often it's like you're not being difficult. You are simply asking almost for the basic minimum, you know, of something. Don't you've got to be the squeaky wheel. You've got to, as you say, that if you go to an agent, say, "I am ambitious. I don't want just you know this, that, or the other. I want to be a bestseller, and I want this, and I want that." Now, to be fair, if you're writing in a niche, if you're writing, I don't know. Uh, you know, something that's really, really niche, some weird kink or something that isn't massively commercial, then that's a problem. You know, that that's you're making life difficult. But if you're writing in a genre, crime or thriller or uh, romance or, you know, one of those genres that is constantly in the bestsellers and it's commercial and it's page turning and you say to your agent, I'm ambitious, I want the big time then you're absolutely right. That feeds through to the agent. And it also feeds through, and I can tell you, because I've been in those meetings, those launch meetings, where the editor says, look, this is an ambitious author. We've paid a lot of money for this author. They want to be a Sunday Times bestseller. They want to be a Richard and Judy bestseller. Uh, we need to go out there. We need to have a Thunderbirds are go moment, you know? Right. And Everyone ups uh, we'll their sit, game. And we sit there as sales, marketing, and publishing. Yeah, we sit there and go, okay, we understand. This is this is the big time. This isn't someone who's going to grow. I mean, my books are growers, you know, and I've had that conversation. We we knew my stuff is a little bit weird and we need to find our <laughs> readers and we need to grow over a few books, you know, yeah, that's yeah, fair yeah. enough. And yeah. um, whereas if I was writing commercial thrillers, or whatever, then I think I would have every right to say, no, this is this is mainstream. I want to see this in supermarkets and blah. So if you're writing in that genre, don't be coy. Make yeah. it very, very clear you've got that ambition. Absolutely. I think it's I think it's super, super important. And but it's very hard for people to kind of get in there. But we've talked about this before, haven't we? And um, we we coach this in the podcast. Is this you have to try? In fact, I had this I had this question the other day in the academy, where somebody was saying, you know, I'm I'm not confident about marketing, 
even marketing myself mm. or as an author? What do yeah. I do? And my my kind of answer was don't think of it as marketing yourself. Be confident in what you've yes. created. You're creating a book. You're creating something is external to you. It's not like you're bigging yourself up. You're bigging up the thing that you've written, which is external to you. And you, you mentioned on a podcast, I remember, I always remember a few years ago, you said, you know, it's about selling the sizzle. It's about selling that. You, mm. And you've, if you're not excited about your book, if you can't sell your book to someone and get them excited to read it, then, then an agent's not going to do that on your behalf. Cause you've got to, you've got to actually do it to the agent first. And the other thing to remember, and I'm going to say this out loud, at the end of the day, why does an agent take on an author? From a career perspective, they their Grammy Award, their Oscar is discovering maybe a brilliant new author and bringing them up through the ranks and seeing them grow from this you know unknown yeah. to like maybe a Richard and Book Club, Richard and Judy Book Club, you know, a winner um, or a Pulitzer Prize winner or a number one bestseller on the New York Times Sunday Times. That's that's their legacy. That's what why they show up as. But ultimately, day to day, why do they take on an author? because they need to pay their mortgage, <laughs> right? An agent takes a percentage of what you earn. So mm. if you earn a lot of money, they get to pay their mortgage off quicker. And that's really great for them and for you. So, you know, you've got, you've, you've got to promote the fact that, you know, and that's, I think, one of the things about commercial fiction is you've got, to, you've got to be confident that your book will potentially sell a lot of copies because that's, that's unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of the equation you're on, that's what makes the world tick in, in the kind of bestseller world. Yes, I will often preface emails to my agents with, you know, how can we make more money out of this? Speaking their language, right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's what it's about. I mean, there's, you know, they love you, they believe in you, they want you to do well, they want you to have a certain kind of creative voice, but it is a business as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah so never and I will that. say, though, that I've experienced this in the music industry as well. That point where money meets creativity is a really difficult place for the creatives. Mm as writers yeah. of whatever we do, the minute money meets meets creativity is where all the problems happen because it's then, you know, oh, you know, you're having to kind of like meet someone in the middle or you're having to make cho commercial choices rather than artistic choices. And that is a, a never ending uh, challenge, I think, for, for any writer. So, you know, it's, I want to recognize that as well. It's not easy. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And we are by design shy and retiring generally authors, you know, and we can be afraid to ask questions, which is why I think you know, one of the big problems publishing has is it does assume authors know everything or they've had some kind of boot camp where they've been told how, you know, Lizzie said she didn't know how long a book was supposed to be. Yeah, she didn't because even know this... a book was a thriller. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah brilliant. exactly. I you love know. that. It's like, I didn't even know it was a thriller until why, someone actually I'm... told me. <laughs> Exactly. And why should she? Because there's no, you yeah. know, unless, unless you join the Academy or the well, exactly. uh, join us on Patreon start. and I'll be expect, you know, you, Absolutely. If, you, if you have some kind of community, but no, no one tells you this stuff. And, you know, it, we have our publishing as its own weird language and, you know, jargon and everything. Yeah. So someone needs to sit you down. Uh, and explain that stuff to there you. will be people listening to this podcast maybe you've discovered the bestseller experience maybe you stumbled across us for this first first ever <laughs> time and you think hey, these blokes what they were talking about but what's really interesting is there'll be people listening to this very show that 
won't have understood some of, you know, and I've written a note here specifically to say it. There's this terminology, arc, yeah. arc copies. There are people who are yeah. saying, I don't know what an arc, because I remember thinking, what's an arc copy? I have no idea. So for people that don't know, an arc copy is an advanced reader's copy. So Lizzie sent her book out um, to to people to kind of read in advance and get feedback before. And often people do it before they submit to an agent. Sometimes they they do it once, once the you know, they've gone through a few edits and, and they want to, look at what I mean we did it to get look through all like um things to do with grammar uh mm. colloquialisms we had a lot yes. of those didn't we because we were writing in, in LA which is not something <laughs> either of us were hugely familiar about um you know and, and and just the general typos and things like that so but it but we always forget I think it's very easy for us to forget that people are joining this incredible journey every single day there's somebody mm. today who's going to wake up and say I might try writing a book today right they're yeah. at that very beginning of the journey yeah, and yeah, yeah. and then they've got that whole kind of like like dark magic that black art of like what on earth all this stuff that goes on and and so yeah it's very easy to forget and especially as we've been doing this podcast for so many years now like we've we've picked up a few things along the way and you've been in publishing for how many how many years now mark are we up to 25 Oh no, I, d- I did twenty five. I mean, you know, am I still in publishing? I suppose I am. You are. I? You're I mean, absolutely yeah, in publishing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. not yeah, in the same yeah. way that you were working for Orion, no, but no. you're very much. Yeah, involved. no, we're, we're 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 rapidly approaching thirty. Goodness me, isn't yeah. that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> right. I only okay. met the state for Christmas. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. They wouldn't let you go. Here's here's a a really interesting thing that I loved that Lizzie talked about. She said that she would always carry her work with her. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I That's, I that. think, actually a really brilliant way to think as a writer because our work is portable. There are many jobs, there are many hobbies that people have where they can only do it in one place. If you're a gardener, you can't carry your gardening with you on the train. Um, you know, if you're working... Um, you know, maybe you're working in a factory. I mean, that's where your work happens, in that location. But writers, and I always remember, um, you know, writers telling us that... that even if you're not writing, you can still be thinking about your story. You can even mm. you can still be thinking about, you know, a plot line or how to fix something. So we get to embrace writing if we want 24-7. And it can become a bit all-consuming when you really get into the thick of it, doesn't it? Yeah. And what I, I loved about Liz is she was very honest about how each book has been written very differently. So the first book, uh, you know, she's uh, working full-time but doesn't have any kids, uh, so she's doing that thing of, you know, writing at the, you know, burning the candle at both ends kind of thing. Second book, she's writing on maternity leave and and in a pandemic. And then the third book, she's working part time, but Thursday and Friday are the writing days. And that yeah. that ability to adapt and change and, and figure it out, you know, that's terrific. And uh, again, you know, this idea that, oh, there's only one way to write a book or you have to do this or you have to do that. No, you adapt it to your own life. And I think every writer can relate to that. Yeah, I loved I loved actually how Lizzie talked about her writing days. I think this is a very, very important thing for people to take note of if they're, like most people are, I think, you know, if they're writing alongside a part-time or a full-time job, you know, for many people, they don't have, the luxury of waking up on a Monday morning and saying, oh, how, you know, what what shall I do this week towards my book? You know, I've got all this, the week ahead of me. Hello. That's, I know, right? <laughs> but, but, you, but you know what? I love it. You've, but you, and that's that's what you've created though, Mark. You've, yeah. you've, you know, you made the decision to do that and you've created it. And I think that's fantastic. And it's inspirational for everyone else to look at as well. 
But for the people that are kind of still in that world of trying to maybe break into writing or they, uh, most people actually are desperately trying to find more time to write. This idea of batching writing, I mean, obviously a 200 word a day challenge is there for people. Everyone should do that regardless. I don't care if you're Michael Connolly or you've, you're just starting today, 200 words a day, that should be, that, they're your stretches. You know, I, I get up every morning out of bed and I, I work out and stretch only for like 15, 20 minutes, but I do it every morning. I've done it for like three years and I've never felt better. And it helps you as you go out into the world. And if you check in with 200 words a day, that starts your thinking for the rest of the day. It's not that you're writing, just writing 200 words. You're maybe then thinking about your book for the next 15 hours, either consciously mm. or subconsciously. That's part of the magic. But for, but for Lizzie, you know, she had this situation where she looked at her schedule and thought, when can I really do the work like intensively and, and creating these focus days is an absolute essential thing. We call it batching within coaching, but um, there's actually a lot of science behind this. That if you if you do a similar kind of task and you batch it together, you kind of get this momentum as you get into it. So they say things like if you've got like six phone calls to make and 20 emails to reply to, batch the phone calls together and batch the emails together. If you kind of intersplice mm. them, you end up doing it very ineffectively. Whereas if you do six phone calls in a row, by the time you get to the third or fourth phone call, you're absolutely like in the flow and you're just cra you know, crashing through it. And I think that's part of Lizzie's success, the fact that she's had these focused days that have become where the work's got done. And that's proof, you know, the fact that she's now got these three books. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. It's um, it's it's so nice to, like, like I say, have an author who has a very clear idea of what she wants and how she's going to get it. And she's constantly working towards it. And I know a lot of us can feel very lost out there. Uh, we can feel directionless, a bit aimless, but so much of it is about you taking control of just how you write and what you want to do with that writing. And I know we feel, you know, we talk about gatekeepers, we talk about, you know, untangible things like word of mouth and there's a there's a certain amount of luck involved but it does kind of start with you and what you want from it and having a clear idea and not feeling embarrassed to say i want to be a bestseller or i want to have a tv show or i want to you know have the best agent in the business or anything like that because you might not hit all of those but it certainly gets you off in the right direction oh completely how many times have we heard someone say oh i wrote that I wrote to those 10 agents and then I wrote that letter to that one agent who was the, you know, the best of the best. Just, and I just, I just posted it or I just emailed it. And then they got that agent. And then they always look at that moment and think attributing all of their success to that risk that they took, you know, that stepping into that yeah. unknown, um, feeling the fear and doing it anyway. I think it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, I, I also love the fact that Lizzie, wrote a lot of her, you know, you talked about her writing on her phone and it made me giggle actually whilst I was listening to it because I think about all the debates people have online about what's the best writing software, you know, and we, we've obviously talked a lot about, you know, the benefits of Scrivener, but it, it makes me, it, it, I love the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, you can still just like whip your phone out and make some notes. I mean, that is so how how lucky are we as writers that we have the ability to do that? We don't need any special equipment. Don't need to set up a studio. Yeah. You know, just get your yeah. phone out or a notepad and a pencil and you're off. And, 
And, you know, we talked earlier, you know, that thing about I can carry my work with me. Uh, but she said, even if it's just turns of phrases, you know, she's on the tube for 20 minutes or whatever. Even if it's just a turn of phrase, it's all about keeping that momentum going, keeping that story moving rather than just letting it, you know, uh, you know, stagnate mm. in the background. Keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. It's, it's all good stuff. And a big reminder for all the parents out there and carers and teachers, get kids into reading. Get kids into reading, take them down to the library. My, my, okay, I'm having, I've got to tell you about this, Mark. This is brilliant. This is total circle life moment for me this morning as I dropped my youngest, who's just become a teenager, off at the bus stop. She said, Dad, Dad, can I borrow your library card? I said, have you not got your own? Yeah, yeah, I have. I, I don't know where it is. Okay. It's ex well, it expired <laughs> when she became 13, so she can now get an adult library card. Right, so she's yeah, very yeah. excited. But she said these immortal words to me. She actually asked me the question, Dad, I want to read a Stephen King book. Oh, can oh I? the time has come. It has. She said, can I read a Stephen King book, Dad? And at first, the kudos to her for asking me, because most kids wouldn't ask their parents. No. It was just, they would just go and sneak a copy somewhere and hide it. On. But I remember when I was 13, those that was, that was the kind of around the age when I started to get curious about, maybe I was Edgy a late stuff. starter, but I remember reading Cujo. I went and stayed right. with my grandparents in Spain. I had a little by myself or flew to Spain by myself on a, it was a, it was a year of like crazy inflation. Ooh, it's kind of a circle of life. And like our family couldn't <laughs> afford a holiday, but they said, look, we'll, we'll get you a cheap flight. You go and stow grandma and grandpa for a few weeks. And I remember bringing mm. Cujo and reading Cujo uh, in Spain and just getting lost in this, like, oh my gosh, this yeah, is really yeah. kind of adult stuff. So anyway, we had a discussion about it, Mark, because I, I, I don't have any of my Stephen King books anymore, apart from The Stand was the only one I kept for some reason. Right. Um, right. But I came to an agreement with her that the book that I think she sh will be okay, and I hope I've not made the wrong, wrong decision here. I've said to her, right, don't start with something really like, I mean, Carrie's probably the best one for her right now because that's maybe relatable. Yeah. <laughs> her age is a good choice. But but I said to her, I, my favourite Stephen King novel was Misery, and I think that's yeah, that's not too. I can't remember. Is that a, was that a really 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 gory one? It's no, not as bad no. as some of this I mean, stuff, was it? No, no, no. There's one incident involving a foot. That's that right. Is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to give I, anything away if you're not read it. Yeah. Or not seen I remember the film. that. It's different in the film. Actually. Yes, the film um, was brilliant yeah. as well. Yeah, oh, it's but, fantastic. So, but, I'm gonna, uh, do you think that's a good starting point out of all the I Stephen King books she could read? Yeah, uh, but I, I carry highly recommend. Okay, um, because that is uh, especially for you know young woman. That's yeah, um, it's terrific. It's the other terrific one I thought book. of. You know, one of my other favourite books was. I don't know why I remember all this one. You remember the Richmond Richard Bachman books that yeah, he yeah, put yeah. out? There was yeah. a book called Thinner. Did you ever mm. read Thinner about a yeah. cherry pie and a curse? Yeah, Something yeah. about that book. Brilliant. Really, I absolutely really, loved really it. Really, really, but this really is it. Good. I'm going to be reliving all the Stephen King books again with my with my teenage daughter. Yeah, How wonderful yeah. is that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Crazy yeah. days. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Mr. Stay, social media. What's going on this week on social media? Okay, I'm, I'm just going to stick with one this week because this is, this is the kind of thing that we start the Academy for. Okay, so this is Kate Baker, who's been mentioned a few times on the social media. And that's because, like Lizzie, she's ambitious. You know, she wants to get her books out there. She wants her books to do well. Um, and uh, she, so she put a long post on uh, our Facebook group and on the Academy. 
And she said, it won't take a genius to work out that my recent mentions of emails from the Society of Authors and an independent publisher and the Book Guild that something was brewing. A couple of days ago, I signed a contract for a partnership project for my historical novel, Made of Steel, which they'll be publishing February 2023. Now, she says, before you'll turn away horrified. Now, the reason is uh, the Book Guild and... um, uh, Troubadour and Matador, they are what's they're a hybrid publisher where essentially you're paying for the book to be published. And I know there are some people who will faint uh, and you know mop their brow and wail and scream about this. You shouldn't you know pay to get published. But Kate's gone into this eyes open. She's got the Society of Authors involved to look at the contract and make sure it's all good, and she's gotten to make some changes as well. So she said, I'm going to give a brief explanation while attempting not to sound defensive. She said, the senior contracts editor at Society of Authors went through the contract with the Nick Comb, raised 15 points of clarification. Uh, Jeremy the Thompson, the MD of Troubadour Book Group, happily replied and clarified those points within 24 hours. Uh, because I'm going into this arrangement not expecting to make any money, it won't be a disappointment not to see my investment come back worst case scenario they're only taking the rights for 12 months and only the book rights she's retaining all the other rights audio film tv blah 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 at the end of the my the day my book won't change the world well you don't know that kate Uh, i I simply want to have some fun with it as someone wise told me not too long ago um you know she said if i were to take up piano i don't expect to play the albert hall immediately i'd book lessons for months maybe years you know if i took up cycling i'd buy all the lycra and silly shoes meaning i'd fall off whenever i braked and i'd have to take out a mortgage to buy a bike weighing less than a can of beans my point is i'm happy to put some money into the services troubadour offer to help an author who wants to self-publish doesn't yet know how nor has the time this summer to start studying the how. Uh, When I submitted the novel at the end of April, uh, they told me they saw commercial potential in it and offered to share those costs. So they're doing a proof edit, the cover, the AI sheet, the advanced information sheet, uh, adding it to their quarterly magazine that goes out to booksellers. And she gets 40% of each book sold, which is actually a better deal. than That's really good. Yeah. And she says, which is better than a slap in the face with a wet fish, as my granny used to say. (laughs) so I'm Kate says I'm defending my right to do this because I'm proud of what I've achieved in a few short years having been treading the path towards traditionally published for four years this territory is new terrifying exhilarating for this book I'm happy to have my hand held I'll be the bestseller experiment guinea pig who tries this method let's see what happens and if it fails spectacularly I can be a guest on a future episode and tell you I sold nine copies and it was a waste of time (laughs) Uh, so uh, so and you know she says some nice words about us as well but look Kate this is this is all this is you know i said to kate you've gone in with your eyes open you've done the right thing you've got advice from us and society of authors um made of steel which i've had the pleasure of reading and giving kate feedback on is an absolutely cracking read as well so kate you know congratulations this is i think this is just the first step on on a much longer voyage and you know she's learning things she's like i say she's ambitious she wants you know she wants to make a career of this um but yeah, uh, congratulations. That's brilliant, Kate. And there's only one way to truly learn and understand what it takes to get a book out there and be a published author, and that is to publish a book, right? And I think all kudos to you. And actually, when you think of every single author you talked earlier about, you know, people um, shouldn't have to pay to publish their books. Well, probably 98% of the world's authors right now are doing exactly that when they publish their own book on Amazon. I mean, it's like you're paying for your own cover. You're paying, you know, 
you're, you're paying in time, you know, you're spending time writing the book when you could be earning money on a, you know, an hourly paid job. So everyone is in some ways um, investing. I like to think of it as investing. Um, it's an investment for your future. And the thing is, is that, like you say, you never know. It's, um, and Kate has got that kind of, you know, go get them kind of attitude that Thunderbirds are go kind of attitude. Let's just, let's yeah. do this. Yeah. Let's do it. And so every, yeah. every best success to you, Kate, we can't wait to hear about how this all goes. And thank you for sharing that with us as well. Yes, thank you, Kate. And folks, if you want to get in touch with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Uh, drop us a line on email. We read all the emails. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact button there and you can send us an email. And if you've been inspired by Lizzie or Kate or any of the authors that we've had on the nearly 400 episodes of the podcast so far. It's coming up soon. Um, uh, please spread the word. Tell your writing groups. Tell your author friends. Uh, give us a rating on your podcast. Catch a star rating. Give us a nice review. Subscribe. All of that stuff makes us more visible and it helps us get authors like you get your voices out there absolutely and find out about every single episode we put out by subscribing to our newsletter bestsellerexperiment.com click on the newsletter button in the navigation we've got a book back to reality if you haven't read it have it's a good summer read if you're in the really Western hemisphere it's a really glastonbury good, glastonbury, it's glastonbury, gl glastonbury this weekend isn't it yeah yeah oh, love it love it oh my gosh <laughs> nostalgia sweeping in um don't forget as well, folks, that um, if you would like to start a habit of a writing lifetime, then the 200wordchallenge.com is for you. It's our free program to help you develop the writing habit. And when you are ready, folks, take it that one step further. You've heard about Kate last week. We we heard about um, our authors that are getting six book deals that started in the Academy. This really does make a massive difference. Come and join the Academy community. Um, have Mark and I as your coaches twice a month, uh, drop into weekly writing surgeries. There's tons more, over nearly 30 courses, I believe there are now on about everything to do with craft, character, plotting, word count, goal setting, we could go on. But do go check it out. Pop over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Um, there's a few days left if you want to join us in July. End of end of June is the deadline for that. So, Mr. Stay, thank you so much for the episode. Congratulations on your new shiny book that we saw this morning, this afternoon, this morning. And all the best for the launch. When's the launch happening again? Remind everyone. Seventh of July. Um, we're going to be far off. Is it? No, it's not. Two weeks today. Uh, as we're recording this. Uh, so yeah, 7th of July. Um, keep an eye on my socials. I'm meeting someone on Friday who might be able to help me live stream it if you're overseas or can't make it on the night. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. And um, it's this just the beginning. There's a so lot of fun stuff coming up this summer. Where do people get info about the actual launch? Is that on your directly on your website? Yeah, go to my socials. And uh, go to wichwoodville.com or follow me on social. And if you're on the Bestseller Experiment newsletter, we'll pop it in there as well to yeah. make sure that everyone gets it. So send me oh, there's the a link in there. Mr. There's Stay. a link in the show notes as well. There's a link in the Great. show notes. So Brilliant uh, stuff. Nice Excellent. Well, yeah. best of luck yeah. with all the preparation for that, Mark. It's always an exciting time in an author's yeah. life. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, listen, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Have an amazing writing week. Remember, think big, be ambitious, and your dreams and goals in writing can come true. So it's a goodbye from Mark One. And a goodbye from Mark too. Tatty bye. Goodbye. Bye.